Friday the 2nd of April 2021 and you're listening to episode 11 of Red Zone Restricted. We're finally back in action on Saturday night against Arsenal. Before we look ahead to that one, we'll reflect on an eventful week in and around the club. We'll actually be back on Sunday for a bonus Real Madrid preview, so you can think of this as part one of a weekend double bill. So I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host Dan Club. I'll just ask how you found the uh, the three weeks really of uh, no Liverpool, probably the longest the longest break in uh, the club's recent history, really between matches. Yeah, definitely the longest break. Um, I found the first few days quite refreshing, but then since I must admit the past what's felt like ten weeks has been. Um, I've been ready for Liverpool to come back now. Um, and it's almost a shame that we're not the early kickoff on Saturday. We're actually the late one. And we are very much ready to see Liverpool play again. Yeah. I'm, I mean, me personally, I've found it probably, if I'm being totally honest, I find it a slight a slight relief given some of the batterings I've taken this season or, and we've <laughs> taken as fans. But uh, but yeah, I see, where, I see where you're coming from. And uh, our guest this week is uh, Leanne Prescott, a football writer who's featured on BC Sport and Five Live, which I think is reading a Twitter bio verbatim. Um, but yeah, another, to use the phrase I used last week, high-caliber guest, I'd say. Um, Leanne, same question to you. How have the, the past few weeks been without Liverpool? Yeah, similar to what you guys have said, really. I think the first few days it was quite nice, you know, quite relaxed. There's been a lot of football on over the last few months. And um you know, generally over the pandemic, there's not a lot to do. So it's been been quite good to watch the football. But then when Liverpool's form has dipped and, you know, we lost a few games at Anfield, came a bit frustrating and you had no one to, to really vent to. I uh, couldn't go to the pub, talk to your mates about it and just sort of sat there thinking, you know, am I going to do the washing? How am I going to get over this defeat? So yeah, a bit of a bit of a mixed bag, really. I think uh, happy that Liverpool are back at the weekend. Obviously, a few big fixtures coming up, and, and hopefully, we can kind of kick on from there. Yeah, uh, the nerves, the nerves are returning for me um, already, really, because Thursday night when we were recording this, and um, obviously Arsenal on Saturday night. But we'll just we'll just briefly sort of reflect on the international break. Um, obviously, international football during the season is famously a bit dull, but. Um, what what sort of stood out from from a Liverpool point of view? I'll come to you first, Dan. Is what what was the the big observation you took from a Liverpool player? I'm really glad you came to me first. Um, I just wanted to touch upon Leanne doing the washing to uh, to reflect on Liverpool results. That's definitely yeah, that's a new one. I might have to try that. Um, but no, for me, Jota really. I can't I can't get away from it. I, I had three names wrote down, um, and I'm glad you came to me first. Like I say, because. I feared somebody else would pick up on it. Um, but yeah, Diego Jota, uh, he's having a, a remarkable season, really. Like, I've seen a lot of stats flying about, like his numbers. I've seen one just before. He's, he's scored as many as Richarlison this season. And we all know how much football he's missed for that knee injury. So, you know, quietly, um, he's, he's been outstanding, really. Um, considering, like I say, he literally missed, you know, the whole middle of the season, if you like. So Jota, yeah, brilliant. I mean, headers as well. Um, but yeah, his, his international record is actually phenomenal. Uh, and it looks like we could have done some serious business there. So he's been the pick from a Liverpool point of view for me. Yeah, oh, that's, that's the thing, really. And he scores um, 
he scores all types of goals. Um, I mean, he scored he scored two against Serbia, didn't he? And then scored against Luxembourg as well. But um, as we, as we saw with, with Ireland, Luxembourg are apparently a uh, a serious opponent. So uh, no mean feat scoring scoring against them. But uh, so yeah, same question to you, Leanne. Sorry if um, you were going to say Jasser as well. Yeah, I mean. As, as Dan said, Jota's been kind of on fire over the international break, which is good to see, you know, coming back from injury. Um, so it's a massive boost to have him. I think otherwise, I'd say always good to see Salah picking up and continuing his form. Uh, scored twice in a 4-0 win. So good to see him on the score sheet as well. And actually, I was, I was quite impressed with Kabak. Um, I watched the game they played against the Netherlands and I thought he was really really good really solid progressive out from the back and he looks like a player who's gaining confidence um, which we've seen in the last few appearances for Liverpool as well. Um, Genie Wijnaldum again probably worth another mention uh, got a goal and an assist we've seen time and time again he plays those two different roles for club and country and I think it, it just goes to show what a valuable player he is and, and tactically how disciplined he is um, so hopefully those players can can come back to Liverpool, bring the form with them. Um, on a slightly different note, I'd say Nico Williams as well deserves a, a decent shout. He's, I think he got over 200 minutes for Wales, played in an important game and, and will have taken a lot from those minutes. Um, obviously not had the, the easiest time at Liverpool this season, um, but seems to be doing well for his country. That's a good point, actually. Um, Williams looks like he's starting to establish himself at that level. And just on, on the genie points, I think, um, yeah, obviously continuing that, that streak for, for Holland. But I, I think I shuddered when I saw that. I think they played Gibraltar the other day and I think he, he played 90 minutes. And I was like, oh, God, why, why hasn't he just been rested? But, um, yeah, just briefly, I mean, why sort of picked out I didn't actually watch any of the matches I think I took the opportunity to have a break but um I saw I saw yesterday that um obviously Jones scored in that um final group game uh, for the under 21s uh but it wasn't enough because they ended up um conceding right at the end of the match and uh and going out and it, it's just really frustrating for him because you know he went and got sent off didn't he and I think maybe that's sort of the culmination of the of the group stage really for him given that he was kind of benched in the first couple of games um, and you know Tom Davis is playing over them which you know I think says a lot about um, A.D. Boothroyd who um, actually did an interview where he called the job utterly impossible um, which isn't great for you know it's not a great thing for a manager to say really it doesn't give you a lot of conf- confidence in himself but anyway we'll move on from the international break to really we're going to Wait through some of the the stories that have that have come up this week. Considering Liverpool haven't actually been playing, there has been some pretty major stuff. And uh, really, the biggest thing is uh, the story that broke on Monday in the Athletic that Liverpool were finalising a deal for Ibrahima Kanate from RB Leipzig, and probably going to be activating the forty million release clause um, to get him. So you know, obviously, very highly rated player. Pretty big transfer fee, quite big news. Um, so I'll come to you first, Dan. Uh, how excited were you when you when you read this on uh, on Monday morning? Yeah, very excited. Um, because, like you say, he's very highly rated. Uh, you, you see clips and you watch bits of him when he's fit. Obviously, I think that's probably the main caveat from it all, really. Um, but yeah, overall, very excited because 
you know, we need to sign top quality centre-halves, which it looks like he is. Um, obviously, we're going to move on to the other elements to the deal and what it might mean for the people. But, you know, on the face of things, yeah, really, really happy with it, to be honest, if it does happen, because, you know, the price is is relatively decent as well for someone who could go on to be a top quality centre-back. Uh, the only thing is there is a massive risk to it because I think everyone's well-versed now in the... Uh, the injury problems he's had. You'd like to think Liverpool have got assurances that, you know, they were pretty unique injuries, if you like, and there's not a trend there because, you know, obviously we all know as well how much Liverpool have struggled with injuries this season. So you'd like to think Jurgen Klopp isn't going to want to sign anyone who's got similar problems because it just doesn't work. You know what I mean? It just doesn't work. So, you know, in the whole, on the whole, very excited by it, to be honest. And just to pick up on something Dan said there, Leon, um, he said it was a it was a risky deal um, to a degree. Obviously, um, would you would you agree with that assessment? Do you think Liverpool are taking a, a fairly decent risk with this signing? I don't necessarily think it's a it's a risk. I know a few people have kind of suggested his injury record isn't the best, but I think the the thing that this season has taught us is injuries just come out of the blue anyway. You know, who could have predicted that Liverpool were going to lose Van Dijk, Gomez and Matip all at once? You can't you can't predict these things. Um, he's 21. He's very good in the air. He's fast. He's progressive, forward thinking, um, you know, comfortable in possession. All the things that Liverpool need from their centre-backs. I think, crucially, you don't quite know what state Van Dijk, Gomez and Matip will be in uh, come next season. You know, Van Dijk seems to be working hard and have his heart set on the Euros, but you know, he, he might go and, and something might happen or he might not go and you know, go into next season a bit rusty. I think Gomez, he seems to be pretty quiet with his rehab at the moment, not quite sure where he's up to. And Matip's pretty injury prone himself. So I think with so many unknowns around those three centre-backs and what, you know, what they're going to return like next season... It makes sense for Liverpool to be doing a deal and to do a deal for a 21-year-old who's got experience in a, a strong league, experience in Europe, and has played against Liverpool themselves. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense. I, I know Dan said we'll probably come on to it, but I'd also be looking to keep Kabak if I was Liverpool. I think he's done really well uh, since he's come in. Again, he's young. And this could just be Liverpool building for the future. And, and what better way, you know, to develop uh, his game than, than under Van Dijk? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about about Kabak in a second. Um, it is it is a slight risk, really, because you know he's only played you know limited football at the highest level. I think he he's only played about sixty games or so in Germany, which isn't obviously a, a, a tiny amount, but it's still. It's still kind of pretty limited experience in terms of the injuries, which is obviously the bigger concern, really. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make for totally encouraging reading the injury record, but um, at the same time, I know there was a, a Twitter thread, um, which I think a lot of people will have seen if you haven't. It was um, from Anna Woodbury put it up, um, who kind of broke down the pattern of injuries um, and suggested that it might be, um, to call him injury pro, might be slightly unfair. And that a lot, some of the injuries might have been sort of following on from each other and maybe poorly managed by Leipzig. And I think, as you alluded to, Dan, there's a an element as well of, you know, Liverpool aren't, aren't stupid. Like, they will have 
I think there was a report from France this week that there's already been initial medical checks conducted. So whether you know we we've got the assurances that we need. Um, but you know, I, I agree with what Leanne says in that, you know, by all accounts, can I say is you know, one of the very best young centre backs out there at the moment, and um, you know, potentially someone who might end up um outstripping the potential of Uber Meccano is his teammate. So it is it is very much an exciting one. Um yeah, well what we'll do now is we'll we'll pick up on what Leanne mentioned about about Kabak. Um and I'll come to you first on this one, Leanne saying is you know you've made the case already that we should keep him around. Do you think that Kabak will see, you know, personally, do you think he'll have seen this news as a bit of a a bit of a blow to him? No, I think, you know, Kabak's come in, he's he's got a lot of confidence for a young player. I, I did laugh at the start when, you know, usually when a player joins on loan in another country, they'll keep their house. But Kabak sold his house. He said his goodbyes to Schalke. And he, he basically said, I'm not coming back. And I think that kind of shows where his head is at. He's out to impress. And he knows this is an opportunity to do so that probably he wouldn't have got if Liverpool didn't have the injuries that they had. Um, I think, you know, he had a little bit of a rocky start getting used to the way we play. Um, some miscommunication with Allison in that Leicester game. But ever since he's he's really settled down. I think Nat Phillips has helped him a lot in being, you know, the the authoritative figure in in defence. Trent and, and Robertson as well. Um, and it, again, similar to to what we said before, he's a young player. He's going to develop a lot. And what better way to do so under the likes of Van Dijk and Gomez and at a team that kind of enables its centre-backs to be able to play football. We saw in the international break, that's something that Kabak likes to do. He likes to build from the back and hopefully he can can grow in confidence. I think if anything, it's it's a greater incentive for him to turn around and say, I've really got to you know make my mark here. And that's what Liverpool will want. That's what Klopp will want. They'll want a player who, who knows they're fighting for their future at the club and has to make a great case. And, you know, Liverpool have been linked with Ben White. They've been linked with... Uh, sorry, Inchu, all these different players are just going to increase the the opportunity for Kabak to impress and say, you know what, pick me instead. Um, I think it, it also goes to show probably Liverpool's strategy for the summer because there's not a lot of money floating around with, with COVID and the financial implications of the pandemic. Ben White would probably have cost 30 to 50 million given he's English and Premier League experience. So looking abroad makes sense and Kabak kind of fits that bill as well. Getting both in means that Liverpool won't have to rely on the likes of Fabinho uh, in central defence going into next season, regardless of what the circumstance around Van Dijk, Gomez and Matip are. Yeah, and um, I think that's an important point. You know, Liverpool are probably going to over-protect themselves, if anything. And it's interesting that you say Cabbacks literally put his house on on um, getting the move um, permanently. Um, so what do you reckon on that, on that one, Dan? Yeah, it's an interesting twist that Anne put on it in terms of him looking at that going, oh, you know what, then I'm going to prove he's all, he's all wrong, I suppose, really, and I'm the man to keep. I personally would, would love to keep both of them. I think I mean, the Kabak's 18 million and it's 34, isn't it, for Konate? So you're looking at 50 million for two 21-year-old, very good centre-backs um, who could go on to become elite centre-backs, I suppose, you'd be looking at. So... I personally would love to keep both. I think Kabak, we all know how bad a start he had. Um, and it was it was pretty bad, if we're honest. But 
he was I've just looked at the Bundesliga table there. Schalke have still got 10 points. You know, it's bad. Like, you know, they're they're well gone. So I think Kabak's done really well since, to be honest. I think he deserves, I think he did well in international duty as well, like we alluded to. So he probably deserves the chance to stay on next season. And and like you've just touched upon there, I, I think we'll go with six, to be honest, six very good centre-backs. Um, and I think Phillips will be one of them. Uh, he's obviously, I think he's won player of the month today for the club. So, you know, he's not really done anything to disprove why he shouldn't be one of them. Um, whether that's enough for him, because we, we've touched on this previously, like if he wants to be fifth or sixth choice uh, is a different story. But from Liverpool's point of view, I'd certainly love to keep Kabak and Phillips on next season. Um, what that means for Ben Davies is probably another story altogether. But yeah, I think, you know, for the money we're talking, you know, you'd probably, like I say, you're probably talking 50 million for two very good, very young centre-half. So it's a little bit of a no-brainer, to be honest. And, you know, one of the Atlantic Crisis who uh, who profiled Kabak, um, Tom Warville, I'm pretty sure he was sort of mentioning the kind of elite centre-backs that Canate is kind of in a group with. And he said, you know, maybe Kabak deserves to be in that, that category as well. Obviously, I mean, the, you know, high potential um, future star kind of centre-backs. Um, but just as like a, a final word on on Canate, Leanne, obviously this this deal isn't done yet, and we know from previous experience that things can fall apart at, at at the last really. But if he were to come in, what kind of role would you see him playing next season? I think it's a tricky one because, as I said, you don't necessarily know where certain players are in their rehab. Um, Van Dijk is, I think he's going to be thirty by the start of next season. Um, Joe Gomez has been so quiet in the sense of, you know, it, once or twice a week we see a photo of Van Dyke running outside. And I, I understand that's because he's in a race to to get to the Euros and Joe Gomez has pretty much been ruled out. But it's going to depend a lot on those two. I think you've got a player there who can probably play alongside Van Dyke and be one of your your starting centre-backs if Joe Gomez isn't quite there for, for the start of the season. But it also probably enables Gomez to play right back as cover for Trent. And that's something that a lot of people haven't necessarily talked about. Uh, Nico Williams has done an, an OK job, but it's not an easy task to fill in for Trent. And Liverpool simply don't play the same way when Trent's not on the pitch. So if Joe Gomez has to fill in at right back, that might give Liverpool opportunities elsewhere. There's going to be a lot of games next season. And again, as always, it depends on how the domestic cups go, how the Champions League goes. Um, but it, it, it seems to be a statement of intent. If it does happen, as you say, we, we don't know if it will go over the line yet, that Liverpool mean business um, and that they're trying to get the numbers in so that they can prevent a situation that we've had this season. Yeah, and on the point you made about, about Gomez and his, his quiet rehab, you know, we had uh, David Lynch on last week and I said, I said this to him, I said, is it a bit worrying that Gomez... You know, it's it's gone a bit dark really with Gomez compared to Van Dyke. Does that mean the injury might even be more serious? And he and he said he pointed to some comments from Klopp saying that he thinks that uh, Gomez should be fine for the start of next season. But it has been, it hasn't been very encouraging. Um, if the if that was the case and they were both fit, I'd say you know, Canate is probably third choice. Um, probably on a similar footing with with Matip. Um, but you never know when Matip's going to be available. Um, and you'd probably say Van Dijk and Gomez 
for the most part. And then you can throw Canate in for some of the less demanding fixtures. And if Liverpool were to uh, be in the Europa League next season, then you'd think in that competition, you'd see players like Canate starting um, every game and maybe even players like Harvey Elliott and um, Curtis Jones as well would be, you know, regulars in, in that competition. So, um, yeah, uh, but we'll, we'll sort of change pace slightly. Um, so there was news this week that uh, there was investment in FSG uh, from a, a firm called Redbird, um, who, they, who I think have acquired a 10% stake in the company. We won't really get too much into the nitty-gritty of that deal. But um, do we think, do we think Dan, that for Liverpool to go out, Leanne, Leanne used the phrase, you know, statements of intent, for Liverpool to go out and, you know, be tying up a, a 40 million deal early on and now, and now to have this investment in, in the ownership. Does that really encourage you in terms of Liverpool's financial picture in the midst of, obviously, the pandemic? It does. And I think the, the last comment you made there in terms of the midst of the pandemic is probably the crucial one because I read some stuff on this, obviously, this week, and it kind of alludes to the fact that as a, Liverpool aren't suddenly going to become this major spending power. We just start throwing money at, you know, your Mbappes and Haaland as much as we'd like to. But what it does look like it means is that we're almost at a level as if the pandemic didn't exist. Um, obviously, the losses the club have incurred because of it, this deal's kind of broke them off. Um, and I think FSG took out money against themselves and all that. So like, we're not going to go too deep into it, but the losses that they've suffered because of obviously the revenues but just disappeared. Um, that's kind of vanished now. And it means Liverpool this summer can go on a more stable footing. Like, obviously, we've seen in January, we were, I don't want to say scraping the barrel, but we were somewhat. Um, and obviously, we, it took us to the last days to do anything at all. So there was obviously financial implications causing that. But that could have easily been the case this summer as well, potentially. We could have been struggling to do deals, potentially. But with this investment coming in to the owners, it looks like it'll mean we can do the business we do in normal circumstances, which is obviously good news. And whether it's coincidence or not, you know, we get this investment into the club and then, you know, in the same week, we're potentially spending 30 plus million on a centre-back and the, this sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it can only be seen as a positive, really. Um, like I say, I don't think it's got, it means we're going to suddenly turn into some sort of gargantuan spending power. But if it means the effects of the pandemic don't hurt our summer spending, then it's got to be a good thing, I suppose, yeah. Absolutely, and, uh, you know, you've really echoed what, what I wanted to say on this in terms of it's the word that James Pierce used when he wrote about it, continuity, and that is, you know, something very valuable to have in these circumstances. And, uh, obviously, European qualification and the level of European qualification that we managed to attain is still going to play a massive part, really, uh, you'd think, in the spending power that we have. And on Europe, um, I just wanted to sort of step back a little in a way, and this is probably um, a little new for the podcast in terms of talking about maybe a wider footballing issue. So this week there was um, some Champions League reforms sort of debated, and they were expected to be greenlit by UEFA, um, but they went because of a dispute about broadcast and commercial rights. So essentially, it looks like they're still going to go through. There's just that minor hurdle to to overcome, uh, first of all, and it's not necessarily a dispute about the actual format itself. So here is the format, and this is from 2024. So there's 36 teams, obviously, up four from what we have now. 
each each club would play 10 games in the initial phase of the competition. Um, so five of those would be home, five away, and the fixtures would be determined by seedings. Then the top eight teams go through automatically into the next round, and the next 16 go into a playoff round to then compete for places in the last 16. It's maybe a little bit confusing, but one of the other key details is that Obviously, there's four extra slots, and now it's been suggested that two of those would go to teams who haven't qualified through the domestic route, but have, and this is a quote, strong European pedigree. So, well, there's a lot, a lot to, uh, to digest there. Um, Leanne, what do you, what do you make of those of those proposals? Obviously, because it could be something that affects Liverpool in the not too distant future. Yeah, I think it's a, it's another case of, I guess football changing and, and money dictating things that don't really need to be changed. I like the format of the Champions League as it is. Um, I know that there's talk about the uh, Europa League conference as well that's that's come into play in the last kind of few months. It just seems to be another reform that's not really needed. I do get, you know, uh, I think Steve Parrish has been pretty vocal about the fact he thinks it's going to be pretty devastating on competition within the Premier League and I can understand this point if it's if it's based on pedigree rather than how the club's actually doing I think from a Liverpool point of view I don't think it will have that much influence obviously this season has been a bit of an outlier in the sense of missing out potentially on top four and, and not doing very well in the league but Liverpool should be unaffected whether that means that it's good for football generally uh, I don't think so. It would be very easy for us to sit here and kind of say Liverpool aren't affected, so who cares? But I do think it's it's a structure that didn't really need changing. There's a magic to the Champions League as it is. And for me, you know, why change something that isn't broken? Yeah, I fully agree. Honestly, the, the first thing I've got, I've got written down here is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that's my mantra a lot of the time when it comes to this, these format changes. I'm sort of suppressing a, a bit of a rant about all this, but if, if I'll let you weigh in on it first, Dan. I won't keep you too long, um, mainly because I echo everything Leanne said. Um, again, not not both don't fix it, really. I really like the Champions League. Obviously, it went through a reform some years ago because it used to be literally only the champions of, of the European leagues that competed in it, and now we have obviously top four and different, different countries have different allotted spaces. Um, Ironically, it would actually do us a favour if that if those rules were in play this season because we'd pretty much qualify regardless by the sounds of it. But yeah, I think, like Leanne said, you know, it doesn't really affect Liverpool, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily a good thing for football generally because it isn't. Um, you know, you can't have European superpowers potentially not being as good as they once were and still getting rewarded. So, for instance, Liverpool were a prime example this season. You know, we could finish eighth theoretically this year and we shouldn't be allowed in the Champions League next season if that's the case obviously if we don't want to win it um, and that would potentially be the case in a few years time and that isn't right so yeah I don't like it but unfortunately you know like with anything in football these days um, it looks like money talks I think there's some particularly elite clubs been mentioned as pushing this I want to say Juventus are quite quite stoutly behind it so yeah, it's one of them things, not good, but also to say in the same breath, you know, in 10 years' time, if that's been in case for six years, we're just kind of 
we learn to deal with these things, don't we? Um, as much as we don't like them to begin with, kicking and screaming, we uh, we learn to get on with it and we'll almost all forget about it eventually. But I'll let you go anyway, Dave, because I'm sure you're desperate. <laughs> well, that's a valid point you make about sort of eventually we're probably, we're probably cool on it a bit. But yeah, I, as you say, it's, it's money talking in it and it's more fixtures means more revenue. But, you know, Let's be honest. This season's told us that more more fixtures in a within the you know restricted space of time isn't how you improve the spectacle. It actually makes the spectacle worse. Um, and yeah, it might work out for Liverpool a few years down the line if they finish you know sixth one season. But I, I'm just worried about like the direction that that football's going in. Really, when you start to go by pedigree rather than you know at the position the team's finished and how well a team's done, you know, in the table. You're starting to head towards or even past the point of no return in terms of having a competitive balance in football. And there's been a lot of talk recently, especially in the VAR age, of you know, people saying the game's gone. You know, you probably hear it once a week. Um, and a lot of the time when I hear that, I'm like, oh, shut up. <laughs> like the the game just hasn't gone. Um, but I think this might actually be genuine games gone territory. Not necessarily the 30, 36 team, you know, 10 game group stage. You know, that's not ideal, but it's fine. But if this proposal about strong European pedigree guaranteeing your qualification spot goes through, then, you know, it's not like they're going to backtrack on that either. Like, that's probably, there's probably going to be expanded to allow even more teams who um, have, you know, the, the history behind them um, to get into the competition. So, yeah, I'm not a fan of it at all. Um, but, you know, we can talk, we'll probably delve into that more in the future. Um, we'll move on to Mo Salah, who was in the news this week. Let's just um, read out his comments, just so you know we're all uh, reading off the same the same sheet, really. Um, so Salah said, it's not up to me uh, when he was asked about whether it was time to leave Liverpool this summer. Um, he said, we'll see what happens, but I prefer not to talk about it now. So a pretty evasive answer. And then he gets asked about playing in Spain, and he says, I hope to be able to play for many more years. Why not? No one knows what's going to happen in the future, so maybe one day, yes. So that one was a little bit more, you know, causing interest. So what do you reckon, Leon? James James Pierce um, tweeted about this. He said Salah's representatives were basically just playing games. Is, would you say that's a, a fair summary of it? Yeah, I mean, we've seen before in the past with Salah's agent, he, he's tweeted in the middle of Liverpool games when Salah's been substituted. I think at the time, as his fans, we're, we're not quite sure why Jurgen Klopp substituted Salah, but it's it's one thing for us to think it and another thing for an agent to spark something, knowing full well that you know any tweet is going to lead to articles about Salah's exit. I think, for me, it's... It's a case of really, really poor timing. Um, Liverpool are about to face Real Madrid in a massive Champions League game. Why on earth is the build-up being quotes about his future? It, it, it does seem a little bit needless. Um, sort of game-playing, I suppose, to force Liverpool's hand to see if they can get a new contract, uh, which I'm sure Liverpool are, are working on and will want to do. Um, I think from a a general perspective, I don't see Salah going anywhere. I'd be very surprised if Liverpool parted ways with him this summer. And, I mean, who can afford him realistically? Because Barcelona seem to be in a, a pretty poor financial state. Real Madrid 
don't look like they're in in much better state either. And you know they both have to look at their succession plans. Lionel Messi is not going to be playing football forever. Real Madrid are going through a, a rebuild themselves. Modric, uh, Kroos, they've got some very older players there. Uh, Benzema as well is not going to be around forever and has carried them at times this season. So for me, it's it's white noise. It's noise I would happily do without and a case of really silly timing from, from Salah's kind of representatives, I suppose. But Liverpool are in a great position as a club generally. Okay, this season, as we've said, is a bit of an outlier, but we're still going into a Champions League quarterfinal. We've still got a great chance to, to potentially go on and win the competition again. And if Salah or any player across Europe is targeting trophies, they know Liverpool is a great opportunity to do so under one of the best managers in the world. I think it, it's really that simple. If you're Salah right now, are you really going to leave Liverpool? Um, his current deal expires in 2023. Maybe the club are just, as I said, waiting to see what, what the finances are over the, the summer. Do you think there's a realistic prospect of, of Salah leaving Liverpool? I don't, to be honest with you. I do find it very bizarre that he'd even he'd even carry out an interview at this stage, to be honest. Um with the Spanish press, like you touched upon. But these things always come out in international breaks, don't they? Like, how many times have we seen it, not just from a Liverpool perspective, but down the years, you know, players go away and all of a sudden there's a very interesting quote from somewhere. Often it's down to, like, translation issues and what have you. But, you know, it always happens on these international breaks and it's happened again. Um, same as Leandre, I just put it down to a little bit of game playing, um, a little bit of... I want to say naivety, to be honest with you, but that might be dumbing it down too much. But, yeah, I don't think there's a realistic prospect that he goes this summer. I think, you know, the, the, the big clubs have got their own targets, and I'm not sure Salah would be one of them. When you look at, obviously, the Haaland deal, probably the big one this summer, he's going to cost someone 100 million plus, probably, and as would Salah. So the likelihood is that doesn't happen. Um, I just put it down to, yeah, agents playing games, representatives playing games, and just really poor. The Sp- to speak to the Spanish press when you're away with Egypt doesn't make a lot of sense at all. We're about to play Real Madrid, and he's constantly linked with a move to Spain. Like, the logistics behind it are mad and, and so poor, and really quite annoying from Liverpool's point of view. But a bigger picture, I don't see it meaning anything for this summer, to be honest. It's a question for next summer, really, in a way, because... You know, his contract expires in 2023. So there's not really any pressure to sell this summer. What I think is more interesting and more immediate really is, I think there's been an assumption and I think it's been quite a long-term thing from both fans and the media that Salah would leave Liverpool and not kind of leave for like, you know, the retirement home, you know, transfer it, you know, in the MLS or in, in Qatar or Japan or somewhere like that. Like... I think there's been an assumption that he, you know, would move to to Spain at some point. Um, but what's strange about it is, no, I don't think anyone's really explained the rationale for that. They've sort of just gone on a gut feeling, and I've always found that a bit, you know, I've never really agreed with that that assessment and and that feeling that people had. And you know, maybe it's based on the history of the club and you know players like Coutinho and Suarez, but obviously times have changed um, since then. So I don't really get it, to be honest. Um, having said that, I don't think he'll end his career at Liverpool. But yeah, as I say, we'll, I think we'll see. We'll see next summer, especially on that one. 
but that's really all the all the week's news covered. So we can move on now to our preview of a pretty big game, really. Um, a bigger game than Arsenal's position probably suggests um, as we go to the Emirates on Saturday night. Um, unfortunately, uh, Leanne has has left us uh, for this final section, but myself and Dan will soldier on and uh, hopefully we've got some uh, areas of areas of debate in our uh, preferred 11s for the game. So I'll let you go first, Dan. So how would, how would you like to see Liverpool line up? In this one, yes, yeah. So lineup wise, um, <clears throat> I've gone with Allison, obviously. Uh, Trent, Kabak, and Philip because I think they've formed uh, a decent partnership. Obviously, as we've seen prior to the international break, and long may that continue. Uh, Trent obviously had a break from internationals by hook or by crook, if you like, but uh, that should have done him some good potentially. We might see a bit of an inspired performance on his first one back. Um, Robertson played you know, a fair amount of football for Scotland, but he's pretty durable. So I'd like to think he comes straight back into the fold um, on Saturday night. So, yeah, and then it gets interesting, I suppose, in midfield, really. So I've gone with uh, Fabinho, uh, Thiago and Keita, um, mixing it up a little bit. I know we touched earlier on Wijnaldum playing 90 minutes against Gibraltar in the week, whereas obviously Fabinho stayed behind. Thiago didn't really feature that much for Spain. And we obviously brought Cater back early for mid-international duty um, after he got kicked to bits in the first game. Uh, and I'd like to see Cater get a start anyway. Um, and like I say, he has been with the, the squad tra- training this week. So I think that'll stand him in good stead. Uh, and I'd like to see if he can have an impact in a more attacking sense. Um, and you look at the other options, like Sir Curtis Jones, he played, I think, yesterday with England under 21. So that's perhaps more unlikely. Um, Oxley Chamberlain not really been you know, in and around the first team selection uh, as it was. Come off the bench a bit. But yeah, I'd like to see Fabinho, Thiago, and Keita. And then up front, I've gone with Salah, Jota, and Mane. I don't think there's much scope to change that, if I'm honest, given what we've seen just before the break again. Um, and obviously Jota's form for Portugal has been outstanding. So Firmino's back fit, I think. He's trained this week, like I say, but I just don't see him breaking back into the team immediately. That could change with Real Madrid on the horizon. You know, we could see... Klopp go back to a bit of a tried and tested front three with Firmino in the middle of it. But I think for Saturday night, because I think in an ideal world, we'd have top four wrapped up and Klopp would make some more changes, but that isn't the case. So we kind of got to go at both games full strength. Um, and that's the team I'd pick for it. Good point. If we were in Man United's position, for example, you know, they're pretty comfortable top four, aren't they? You know, we, we could, as you say, you know, maybe make some changes with a view to it. My team is um, exactly the same as yours, yeah, identical. I thought the one area um, of this potential disagreement might have been me putting Cater in, but, you know, as you say, Wijnaldum's played so much more football. And yeah. I think I think Cater will give you the good all-round performance if you put him in. And uh, having, said, having said that, you know, it's a big game. You know, Klopp's probably going to put uh, Genie in there. Um, yeah, it, it is. But sorry, just a bit into what I think Tuesday's probably bigger, isn't it? Obviously, for yeah. a lot of reasons. So I'd like, I'd like to think he'd go with Cater um, and almost save Wijnaldum because I, I think he's almost certainly played against Real Madrid. 
Um, and I know we're saying we need to go full strength, but Cater isn't necessarily a, a massive drop from Wijnaldum in many ways. So I, I can see him. I can see him making that change. To be honest. Yeah, maybe. Is uh is Milner fit? Milner's back fit now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, Milner should be around. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so maybe even that's an option because I think Klopp yeah. likes to go with you know certainly a couple of those you know really tried and tested uh, midfielders when he goes to especially when he goes away from home to these uh these big teams. But you know there have been some surprising selection decisions, and I think Cater would be slightly surprising, but for me would be would be the right call. Um, but. How do we think the game's going to go? Um, you know, score predictions. Arsenal, obviously, they've looked a pretty good team going forward recently. They've had Odegaard come in. Um, he's seemed to have had a positive impact. Um, and they've got some quality players in there as well. You know, the likes of, of Tierney, Aubameyang, Partey in midfield, they really like as well. But having said, having said that, you know, they are a mid-table team with clearly a vulnerable defence, as, as they showed at West Ham. So... I think vulnerable defence probably sums up where, where my thinking lies with them, to be honest with you. And obviously, we've had one previously, but, you know, touch wood, it looks like that could have been fixed, potentially, with a new new centre-back partnership. So, yeah, they're a decent side with some decent attacking players. Um, I think that West Ham game you touched upon pretty much summed up their season. Like, they were woeful. And they, they conceded three goals in no time. And then all of a sudden, they seem to be clicking into gear and play some decent footy. So... Yeah, I fancy us, but there's no surprise there. Um, we need to finish the season really strong, don't we? Um, whether that be in league or Champions League, really, um, to give ourselves the best chance on both fronts, obviously top four and potentially going all the way to Istanbul. So I think that needs to start from the off. That needs to start from Saturday night. I don't think there's any... With so few games to go in the campaign, there's no excuses now in many ways. You know, We've had a pretty dismal season whether there's reasons for that or not. I just think, you know, draw a line in it now, you know, get, get everyone back into training, probably tomorrow it'll be, um, and go from there, really. And, you know, we haven't got, there's no nowhere to turn. Like, if we drop points, that's pretty much it for the top four, we'd say. And then it's all eggs in the Champions League basket. So, yeah, I'm expecting a big performance. Um, and I, I fancy us because I think their defence is very vulnerable. Uh, and I think we'll hurt them more often than they can hurt us. So I'd probably go for, I might be even quite bold and say a 3-1, 3-1 Liverpool win, to be honest. Um, I am feeling, and I always am against Arsenal because they're a football club that likes to play football. They have a certain way about them. Um, and that tends to suit us, like I touched upon on here before. And Mikel Arteta the same. He likes his sides to, well, he likes his side to play out from the back and get the ball down. And I, I like that against us. So I think it all bodes pretty well. And when you look back towards the end of last season, especially in those FA Cup ties that, that Arsenal played, the one against Man City stands out, you know, Arteta would set up quite conservatively and sort of rely on Aubameyang on the break and sort of try and sit in and absorb the pressure. I don't think he does that anymore. I, I'm, no. You know, we're not probably going to come up against that Um on Saturday, so you know that probably will suit us. I don't know. I still don't feel particularly optimistic going into it. Um, I think just generally, like my level of sort of, of faith in the team has has taken a bit of a batter in the season. So I've said um, I've gone for a, a one-all draw, um, which you know years gone by. That's not a bad result, I guess. If you look at Arsenal's position in the league, then 
it would seem that way. And especially given that we can't really afford drop points, it, it would be a disappointing result. Um, but yeah, I just don't think, you know, my confidence levels are, are hugely high um, at the moment. And, you know, I'm, I'm extra concerned as well because um, I know this, this Arsenal fan from uni who will literally, if Arsenal, if Arsenal was to beat us at the weekend, I would be getting screenshots of that scoreline until <laughs> until probably the 2023-24 season. So those Champions League reforms come in actually um, <laughs> if if we were to lose. So yeah, there's a, almost a, an added fear going into it for me. But yeah, I've gone I've gone with a one-all draw, but I fully take all your points, Dan. I think your prediction is probably more rational than mine. Mine's just probably just based on, you know. My kind of broken spirit, <laughs> in yeah, which, a way. which is understandable. Like, like I say, like it'd be easy to be in that boat given what's transpired this season. But like I say, mine's obviously optimistic as I always am. But mine's very much based on the fact that we've had this little break now. You know, not everyone's had a break for obvious reasons. But I just think I don't know. Top of me, we've probably got potentially ten or eleven games left in this campaign. Like that's it. So if we can't sort of galvanise ourselves now for this, then we never will in many ways, you know. So it's kind of got to be all or nothing. Um, and yeah, that's why I'm, I'm thinking extra positive this week. Yeah, and as you say, almost with that big break, it's like a slight reset in a way. And it's like, right, so put everything that's gone, that's gone by behind you. Try and, if you know, if you can put a run of results together, you might still get top four. I think we might now be marginal favourites in the Champions League as well. Potential semi-final there. So there's still a lot to play for. We'll leave it there. Just before we go, um, I had a look over the uh, the analytics for the podcast and saw very intriguingly that we had um, we had listeners um, last week and the week before in uh, Finland, Lithuania and China. So we are now an international podcast in a way. The reason I bring it up is because on the off chance that a, a Finn, a Lithuanian, or someone from China is listening in, uh, please message me on, on Twitter um, at Dave underscore Comerford. Just give me just give me a shout on Twitter because I'd love to to get some international perspectives um, on the podcast and, and hear from some of the listeners, really. So yeah, that is going to be all that we have time for, unless you've got any uh, foreign uh, foreign listeners you'd like to issue an appeal to, Dan. Well, um, I just got to say, I imagine the Finnish one is Javi Lippmanen. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, from Lithuania, I'm not sure. I couldn't even tell you. China, same. But I imagine the one from Finland is Javi Lippmanen. Or his fan club, at least. Yeah, well, we might be able to get him on. Um, so, well, yeah, it's open. Yeah, so we can look forward to the uh, the live show in Helsinki um, in, a, <laughs> in a year or so's time. But uh, that's all for now. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts.